Hello, Scuttlebutt listeners. I am Will, and we are here today with John Curry. He is a Marine, a pilot. He is currently in, in Iraq, and he also is the CEO, president, leader of Semper Savage, the most faithful salad dressing company you could ever ask for. John, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. How's it going today? So just a, just another uh, lovely day over uh, over in the states. How's uh, how's uh, how's the weather in Iraq holding up? Actually, the weather in Iraq is taking a turn for the better. It's it's cooling off, and uh, the rains haven't showed up yet, and so it's like being in Southern California. It's pretty awesome. Beautiful. So, just for uh, for our listeners, can you just give some uh, background information of who you are, where are you from, how you ended up in the Marine Corps? Yeah, uh, I'm. Uh, uh, obviously, John Curry is my name. I've been I uh, I was in the Marine Corps for about 23 years, and uh, I grew up in North Georgia on a, uh, a horse farm, and um, just kind of wanted to go out and see the world and do something meaningful in my life. I had uh, had a couple buddies who had been through the Marine Corps officer program. Had several more buddies who had been in the Marine Corps as enlisted personnel. Uh, I had been working around North Georgia in various capacities uh, for a while, was going to school, and um, I took the tests and whatnot, had the opportunity to go, go to OCS, and uh, I made it, uh, went through TBS, uh, went down to flight school in Pensacola, Florida, uh, managed to make it through that somehow, selected AH1 whiskeys, went out to Pendleton, learned how to fly the whiskey, came back to... Uh, uh, New River near Camp Lejeune, NAS or uh, Marine Corps Air Station New River, and um, that's where I really learned to fly fly and fight the Cobra. Did a couple uh, overseas deployments from there, uh, many other deployments, you know, around the U.S. Going out to what we used to call combined arms exercise and uh, WTI and stuff like that. Um, then I went to be in a reserve squadron, and about. That's kind of a funny story, but about two weeks, I want to say it was about two weeks after I showed up there, the squadron was activated and we went to Afghanistan. Uh, so I did a tour in Afghanistan. Following that, I ended up at Pax River, which is where all the developmental tests and the program offices and things are. Um, ended up in the Cobra Huey shop at PMA 276. Uh, little did I know, but that kind of made the rest of my future. After that, I was sort of a beltway bandit. I was at the, uh, I was at the Navy Navy Yard for a while. I retired out of the Pentagon as a lieutenant colonel. Uh, after that, I had a job working for uh, a bank for about a year and got uh, got tapped to come back to Headquarters Marine Corps Aviation as a retiree to work as what we call a graybeard uh, in charge of the uh, H-1 program, uh, which was at the time we were phasing out the uh, whiskeys and uh, replacing the um, uh the Novembers with the Yankees and the Whiskies with the Zulus. And I got to see that through until we finally got the whole fleet outfitted with both aircraft. It was very challenging. I absolutely loved that job, but then I got the opportunity to come back to Iraq, um, come overseas and do something completely different. Uh, and so now I run an air wing um, uh, over, over, um, near Baghdad, in Iraq, uh, diplomatic mission, just kind of moving moving people and stuff around. And that's that's pretty so much yeah, it. I'm I'm not, not, awesome. So I looked through your resume, and you have a, a pretty interesting 
discussing itinerary of where a place that you've been through. So starting off, though, I noticed you were in Kosovo, correct? Yeah. Uh, in fact, you had one of my good buddies, uh, Hesty, on Andrew Hesterman, on uh, your show not too long ago, and uh, he and I were in Kosovo together. Uh, I was there twice. I was there once, same time Hesty was there, uh, flying around doing doing some peacekeeping stuff uh, right after we had bombed the ever living shit out of the place, and um, that was a real eye eye opener for me. I was relatively young in my career. I mean, I was, I was, I, I definitely had some hours under my belt and was a pretty seasoned pilot, but, uh, that was my, that was my first experience in a war zone. Definitely had some eye-opening experiences there. Uh, I will, will tell you one little anecdote, uh, from that time. Uh, I don't know how old I was. I don't know. I was like 30, something like that. And, uh, I had never really thought about the freedoms that we have in America or why we have certain freedoms. And so this one is specific to the Second Amendment. And I got to tell you, it, it was a very stark recognition of the, the reason we have the uh, Second Amendment. But let me just tell you the story. So I don't know, we were doing some kind of convoy escort or something. We were flying over this little town. And for those who don't know, because this is, I guess, a long time ago now, heck, I think it's yesterday, but it's more than 20 years ago now. Uh, there was a lot of ethnic, there was ethnic cleansing going on there. So there was conflict between the Serbs and the ethnic Albanians who were in Kosovo. And uh, were killing the ethnic Albanians. So we're flying over this town and half the town's all busted up, burned out. And there was a pasture out behind the town and there was hundreds of fresh graves and I'm looking down there and I realized what had happened and what had happened is one half of the town uh, ethnically cleansed the other half of the town uh, where the Albanians lived and killed them all and basically buried them in their own backyard and right then I was like wow you know that is why we have a second amendment in America the ability to defend yourself against uh, you know a roving band of crazy people or against your own government it was just a really stark uh recognition of why we have that uh that particular right and freedom uh so that was a big lesson learned <laughs> man that was a big takeaway from that experience that's that's incredible so i guess what what uh what does pe like flying peacekeeping missions entail in in a, in a in a place such as kosovo like what, what specifically uh, were you doing in that capacity? Yeah, uh, in that capacity, we were doing a lot of convoy ops. And uh, don't ask me what the guys in the convoy were doing, because I don't remember. But our mission was to protect uh, those guys uh, from attack. And, uh, you know, we weren't out there looking, looking to scrap. Uh, but uh, it was a... It was a defensive security measure where, you know, if they uh, got ambushed or something, we'd be able to suppress the enemy long enough for them to get out of the kill zone. And, um, but never, never ended up having to go trigger down in Kosovo. Um, there were some very interesting things tactically that happened there. One of them, which I've never seen since in two more wars, um, 
was an ingenious method of of jamming us. Now, at the time, we did not, for whatever reason, we were not using uh, crypto fills on our com. I can't remember why we weren't, uh, but we, we weren't using crypto. So we weren't talking covered, using a lot of code and all that kind of stuff. But these guys were essentially using a, a um, like a police scanner. They would find our freak and they would just key the mic and start talking gibberish into it. And it was, it disrupted our comm so much that we had to pogo or to push to our next freak. And I don't know what everybody's experience is, but at the time anyway, tactically we had three freaks and we would, we would have a primary and alternate and a tertiary and we would, and we would just push to the next freak down. And we were, we were rolling through those frequencies comp constantly trying to stay ahead of these guys, but it really, it was a real pain in the ass, basically just mm -hmm. trying to, to keep calm with the convoy and with the uh, forward air controller in the convoy. Um, in fact, that might be why we were not covered because the TAD net, the TAD net, the tactical air direction, tactical air direction net, uh, was traditionally uncovered, which that changed when we went to Afghanistan. Took a little getting used to, but uh, it was definitely worth it. Uh, bottom line, uh, they basically screwed up our dope by with with just a just a you know a dime store scanner uh, and a and a little transmitter. It, that's that pretty interesting. Yeah, that seems like a recurring thing, especially in the Marine Corps Gazette. I see how. Um, enemies are able to, especially um, non-state ones, are able to use commercial off-the-shelf materials to counter million-billion-dollar equipment. Yeah, so I think that's something really important for us to remember. Uh, you know, I remember having a with this was a conversation with guys who should know better. These were like colonels and lieutenant colonels. I was having this conversation with, and I, I think we were actually having a Second Amendment debate. Uh, or conversation and somebody brought up oh yeah well uh your i don't think your uh rifles um uh, you know your ar-15s and whatnot are gonna uh, be able to hold back the power of the u.s government and i'm like are, are you freaking kidding me ever heard of vietnam you know ever heard of the gwat they've done a pretty good job and actually strategically if you want to look at uh uh, Afghanistan, you could make the argument that they, they geopolitically absolutely kicked our ass in Afghanistan. Now, a lot of that was shooting ourselves in the face. But uh, but nevertheless, yeah, it does not take a lot of technology to disrupt a high-tech, um, super professional army. A another example of that would be in um, Stalingrad. Uh, during World War II, where after the air superiority, uh, air superiority of the Nazis had been, basically after they had bombed the ever-living crap out of Stalingrad, uh, there was the effectiveness of their superiority in artillery and, um, uh, and air was negated uh, because, one, uh, the compartmentalization of kills uh, was... Uh, negated, right? Because everything's busted open now. So you drop a bomb on a building and the effect gets sent out through all the holes that you created with previous bombings, vice being confined inside a building where you get a lot of overpressure kills. Um, 
that wasn't happening anymore. Bottom line, their own success negated them. And at a certain point, uh, there, there's like a, you beat down an enemy to a certain point, but after that point, it, your your technology and stuff is maybe largely negated. It's something for us strategically to keep in mind, definitely tactically uh, to keep in mind uh, as Americans that just because we got the latest and greatest does not mean that we're going to be, you know, uh, beating the crap out of an under, under-equipped, uh, under-trained force. Well, your experience does, with that doesn't end in Kosovo. You, uh, if I look at your resume, you were also in, in Iraq and Afghanistan on, on multiple occasions. Yeah. Do you mind telling me about, uh, about those tours and, and, and uh, your actions in them? Yeah, so Iraq was um, really an eye-opener. They're all eye-openers because everything's, everything's different. Every theater's different. Every month, every year uh, in a particular theater is different because things change sometimes dramatically. So I was here during the invasion of Iraq, so spring of 2003, and I was on 2-4 Mew. We had been doing silly circles in the Gulf of Oman, doing silly circles in the, in the, in the uh, Persian Gulf, doing rehearsals and whatnot, preparing for this thing. And I want to say we were out for eight or nine months before we ever got the opportunity to go. And so we came ashore right as An Nazaria was wrapping up. And that was our first, I think that was our first experience with a really resistant, you know, an enemy that was really uh, resisting uh, and fighting pretty well. Um, and I, I was in Iraq, that invasion piece, I don't, I think it was around 30 days. And then they pulled us back to the boat and sent us home because they needed to reset us uh, in order to get the rotation going, right? Because we had this initial big buildup, <laughs> went and did the invasion. And uh, uh, then they had to get a rotation going because they knew that we were going at the, at the very least, we were going to need to have some peace enforcement uh, forces there. But my experience in Iraq was was really interesting. It was um, it was my first time in a really really hot combat environment, and I was already a senior instructor. In fact, I think I had been I, I was already selected to be a major. So you know, I was kind of a kind of kind of a senior guy. I was the Cobra WTI for the float, and uh, and I had a bunch of young guys depending on me to. Uh, to bring them home. I had trained them well, um, you know, but this was going to be a new experience for, for them. And, and heck it's a new experience for me. So the first, the first battle I really, really remember was, uh, Al Kut and, uh, God, it was, it was so bizarre. There was a bridge going across the, uh, Tigris that had been structurally damaged in a strike. And what we called team mech, um, it was one of the RCTs, and I don't remember which one now, but uh, one of the RCTs, which, what does that stand for? Some, a, a, something combat team. I don't, I don't remember. Regimental? There you go. Yeah, regimental combat team. It was one of the RCTs, tanks, tracks. Um, they were stopped in, in Al-Kut waiting to cross this bridge. The engineers were taking a look at it to figure out whether they could get everybody across this bridge. So they're stopped to the south of them, to the south of the road, they're freaking 
shooting everything in sight. There's this battle going on, right? So me and my flight end up overhead. And on the other side of the road in this square are all these Iraqis. It's like people decided they were going to come out to watch the war. It was the most bizarre thing I've ever seen in, in my life. Literally on one side of the road, you've got this firefight going on. And on the other side of the road, you got all these Iraqis standing over by these buildings and they're all waving white flags, basically don't kill us. And right next to them, we were running strikes on, uh, you know, equipment and, and, and stuff uh, to destroy it. Um, right there, I almost got shot down by a mortar. Freaking mortar round, picked my airplane up and moved it about 10 feet laterally. Um, another, some of this, you know, it's dark humor, man. Some of this stuff I look back on and I, 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 I kind of laugh. It's a little perverse, but, uh, we came around, uh, came around one time to run an attack on something. And, um, uh, the guys, the, the guy who was doing the shooting, his missile didn't code up or no, it didn't capture it launched. He had a hellfire launched the hellfire. It didn't capture to go to the target. And it just went. And I remember looking out at the city of Alcoot and going, oh, holy shit, where is that thing going to land? That's going to ruin somebody's day. Uh, but obviously, we didn't stick around to, to find out. We were pretty busy. Uh, but that's one thing I definitely remember. And then I remember as resistance began to fall off, as, as organized resistance began to fall off later in the time I was there, we were fighting east of Baghdad. And I'll never forget it. It was kind of kind of hilarious in a way, but there was every skid aircraft. I, I swear there must have been 20 of us. Cobras, Hueys, everything. Loaded for bear, just dying to unload on something. And, and it looked like apocalypse now because nobody had any work for us. And uh, it, it was kind of a first, but all of a sudden it looked like apocalypse now all these all these dudes from the west coast and from the east coast um you know looking for work and uh, finally we just kind of had to accept that it slowed down for a little while and that's about the time uh as we came up around the north side of baghdad that was about the time that they pulled us um they pulled the 24 mu back to the ship to to send us uh send us back home but a lot of really interesting experiences there, you know, uh, uh, first time doing any kind of urban, really urban combat. Uh, we, we were having some losses and things and General Amos was the commanding air, he was an air wing commander at the time. And uh, he said, hey, I don't, I don't want any of my uh, uh, Cobras and Hueys going into Baghdad. I don't want them going to any towns. Okay. And uh, of course, that's what the infantry kind of needs us to do. Uh, but yeah, they they asked me, "Hey, can you press up? Uh, can you press up into, into up this street and take a look?" I'm like, "Dude, no, I, I can't. Uh, I can't do that." We're we are told under no circumstances are we to expose ourselves that way. That we actually had a uh, here's something interesting. A couple of things tactically, I guess, for guys to remember in case some of your listeners listeners are interested. In the Cobra specifically, but probably in most of the aircraft at the time, in order to uh, in order to get our navigational systems 
and and our weapon systems actually to to code up and to uh, uh, to align properly, uh, you had to have GPS, or you at least had to have GPS time. And I don't know why, but we lost GPS for a couple of days. And not only that was navigation very difficult, particularly in the southern part of uh, Iraq, but uh, it kind of it kind that kind of screwed up our dope uh, just a little bit. Um, so it was really interesting. And the other piece that was really interesting about it was how quickly the war moved initially. It moved so fast that we didn't even know where we needed to go. So what I would do in the morning is I would brief at 04 with my flight, launched out at 06, and we would pass the night crew on their way back in. So they're coming back in about 06. I'm headed out about 06. And, I, and we would debrief over the over the radio and they'd say, hey, this is where we were fighting. This is what we were facing. You know, recommend you use this FARP uh, or FOB or whatever the case may be for fuel and ammo. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever even read of anything like that where there was just no, the war was moving so fast. There was no dependable intel other than the guys who you were literally passing on the way into the battle area. Anyway, that's definitely something to, uh, Definitely something to think about for future conflict. Oh, no, here's, a, here's, another, here's another thing, just FYI, and I don't want to get into the politics of the recent changes we've made uh, in the Marine Corps structure, but I, I sure would hate to uh, have done some of those battles without our tanks. That's going to be, that's going to be, uh, it's going to be tough. I don't know. We'll see. Well, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's an issue we go uh we address repeatedly in either gazette um uh scuttlebutt or any of the other uh marine corps association items that yeah it is it is a very controversial take and we'll uh we'll hopefully hopefully uh you know never have to see the the, the take uh occur in real life but yeah that, that's a, that's that's a good point to bring up so you're you're in iraq during the during the invasion during the more conventional phase but then i looked at your resume you ended up in, in afghanistan yeah. How, how did that go? Well, uh, from, from, well, from, okay. from, from conventional to the Afghanistan, which is yeah. the best that I turned out to be. So I ended up there in 2004, but I got to tell you how I got there first, because it's kind of a funny story. My purse tempo was extremely high. I had been deployed a bunch for years. I had been deployed a lot, not only overseas, but also within, within CONUS, uh, doing various things. And, um, I called up my good friend, who's now a general, uh, Chick Rideout, and uh, he was the monitor at the time. I said, hey, uh, what are you doing with me? And he said, well, we're going to try to give you a break. We're sending you to the reserve squadron in Atlanta. And I said, cool, that'll be good. So I went down there. I showed up with 126 days of leave on the book. Uh, that's just due to how much I had been gone. Not been able to take the leave. I had 126 days. Uh, Colonel, then Colonel, uh, now retired General Tim Hannafin was the MAG CEO. I came in to talk to him and uh, he said, uh, you need to take some leave. I said, Roger that, put in 30 days. I don't know how many days I had in that, that I had been on leave when my good buddy, uh, Dave Reese, calls me up, Cooter. Cooter Reese calls me up from the squadron and says, uh, hey, dude. Um, the um, 
the squadron's activated. We're going to Afghanistan. Your leave's canceled. CO wants you back in here tomorrow morning. And I was like, dude, I don't know who you're talking to, but this is a prank I would pull on you. So don't try pulling it on me. Hung up. He called me back. And he goes, no, turd. That's my call sign. He goes, turd, I'm telling you, it's for real. And I'm like, dude, do you think that I don't know? What do you think I would do if you hung up on me? And I was playing this prank. I would call you right back and I would swear on my children that it was true. And so I said, no, don't, I'm not buying it. Hung up. He called me back a third time. He goes, he goes, John, I swear to God, I'm not kidding. So bottom line, I finally got it. And I'm like, oh my God, I cannot believe this. So I had to go home and tell the wife. Not happy. The Curry household was not a happy place. And uh, so I went back in and uh, the squadron ended up spending 14 months in Afghanistan. I ended up going over there uh, in March of 2004. And I left in November of 2004. Very, very different environment. It was lower intensity, at least at the time. It was lower intensity. The biggest hazard in Afghanistan from an aviation perspective uh, was the terrain and the weather. That was the thing that would kill you. Uh, and believe me, came close uh, on several occasions, way too many occasions. And so just so people understand, here's the Here's, let me, let me give you a little story to illustrate. So guys down in, so our, the front, as we called it, was, was, was down at, uh, down near the, near the southeastern border at a fob called Salerno, which I don't think exists anymore. It's near a town called Calst, right on the border, very, very close to the border. And there was little hotspots. There was BCP-2, that one always, BCP stands for border checkpoint, I think. BCP-2, that was always getting schwacked. Uh, Lawara was a special ops uh, camp. That was always getting schwacked, stuff that's right down on the border. Well, in order to get to some of these places, you got to go through some pretty serious mountainous terrain. So what would happen, particularly in the summertime, is the air would be full of dust, and uh, there would be a cloud cover and there's no IFR structure. In other words, if the, if the airplane, uh, if we popped into the clouds, there, there was no way to recover us, um, at least within our fuel range. We couldn't climb up and get an approach back into an airfield or something. And uh, so it was very hairy. So guys call, it's a troops in contact, you gotta go. And uh, Many, many a time, we damn near died on the way to the, the, the tick, as we called it. And uh, many, many a time, we damn near died on the way home. Uh, it was by far, the weather and the terrain was by far the most hazardous thing about Afghanistan. It's a beautiful country, gorgeous to look at, um, definitely foreboding. Um, some of the highest mountains I've I've ever actually probably the highest by far mountains I've ever seen in my life, particularly as you approach uh, Abad. At least we called it. I think it's called Asadabad. We called it Abad. Um, God, that was a shithole. Um, some some crazy stuff happened up there, but uh, vastly different from Iraq. 
tactically vastly different from Iraq. Uh, the threat was different. The tactics you had to use due to the terrain and the enemy were completely different. Um, so, yeah, definitely an interesting experience. Uh, I remember thinking while I was there, I was literally praying to God that my son, who was three or four at the time, uh, my son Jack, would not have to come over and fight over the same ground and the same terrain as I had 20 years later. And uh, it's kind of funny because how old was he? He was maybe 19 uh, when, when he joined the army and became an infantryman. Uh, but we were fighting over the same terrain, the same checkpoints, the same choke points uh, that the Russians did. And the way I knew that uh, was uh, General Hannafin, the MAGCO at the time, Colonel Hannafin at the time, had given me a book called The Bear Goes, The Bear Went Over the Mountain, which was about the Russian experience in Afghanistan. And I was reading through it. And it was like those little tactical problems that at least used to be in the Gazette. Uh, it just kind of laid out what happened. And sure enough, I was like, oh, yeah, I know where that is. Oh, yeah, I know where that crossroads is. Uh, all, same, same areas. We were fight, fighting over the same areas with largely really the same the same enemy uh, using a lot of the same tactics. So yeah, Afghanistan's a crazy place. Uh, I mean, I got some pretty strong opinions on, on what we did there. I, I think kind of like what, what I alluded to earlier with at a certain point, the, the strategic and tactical advantage and maybe not strategic, but, but the tactical advantage of a, of a far superior technological force is definitely neg negated I think after we did the initial schwacking there in 2001, maybe 2002, after we had the special ops teams go in and eliminate some folks and kind of disrupt some things, uh, once we got into nation building, uh, I think it was a mistake. I think it was a foreign policy and military mistake uh, based on my own experience. And uh, as you know, I've made some videos about, uh, about the geopolitical implications, most of which have actually absolutely come true. Um, uh, so yeah, crazy place, crazy war. Um, I'm glad I had the experience, but, uh, definitely different. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's a pretty, uh, brief, but, uh, accurate, accurate way to describe it from, from all I've, I've heard from everyone we've interviewed so far. So yeah. how did you then get from, uh, you said you were uh, you were stationed in the states for a little bit. Then how did you get from Afghanistan back to the states and now out to Iraq today? Yeah, so interesting story, and I'll and I'll make it short uh, because the details are are very boring. But I so I got back from Afghanistan, uh, did another stateside deployment with uh, HMLA seven seven three, the Red Dogs, which was the reserve squadron, which remained activated the entire time I was I was there. So I I. I've never actually been in anything but an active duty squadron, despite the fact that they were a reserve squadron. Uh, and it, it was time to uh, get orders to do something, right? And uh, I didn't really know what else to do. So I talked to the, the monitor the next time and I forgot who it was this time. It might've been, uh, it might've been Noodle 53 guy. Anyway, I don't remember. Uh, but I talked to him. He said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, 
Send me back to 269. Send me back to New River, back to the gun runners. And uh, I just didn't know what else, what else to do. And he's like, yep, done. Right, Roger that. And uh, I, I remember talking to my good buddy, Jim Jenkins, uh, who was a, he was out at Mott's. I was out there. I, I went out there all the time. Anyway, I was out there for some reason. And uh, he, he goes, so what are you going to do next? And I go, well, it looks like I'm getting orders back to 269. And he goes, man, are you sure you want to do that? You know, with your with your experience and with your, basically with how much you've been gone. And I'm like, <laughs> I was like, dude, I just don't really know what else to do. I, I don't even know what to really ask for other than, you know, go back to my home squadron. And he's like, man, I don't know about that. Well, so the wife finally said, I don't care what you have to do. You need to get something that doesn't deploy. You owe it to this family. You have been gone forever. I said, okay, yep, Roger that. You're right. Called up the monitor again. Now, this is orders are getting ready to be cut. I mean, this is like April. Orders are getting ready to be cut. And I said, I said, dude, I know I'm I know I'm kind of screwing with you. So I have got to do something non-deploying. I don't care. Where are you send me? Send me to the worst job ever, but it has got to be non-deploying. And he said, well, uh, I'll tell you what, I've got a spot open at Pax River, Maryland. Um, and I'm like, what in the world is Pax River? Well, this turned out to be kind of serendipitous because, um, one, I, I got to go more or less work a nine-to-five job. Two, I was, at the, I was in the Cobra and Huey program office which was huge, really opened my eyes. Plus, obviously, as a Cobra pilot, I was, I had some familiarity. Ended up doing, I think, a lot of good while I was there. Um, but it allowed me to reconnect with my family. It allowed me to kind of cool out a little bit. It also introduced me to some very important work that is done, uh, which is the acquisition world. It's the stuff that's done in the Pentagon. Is the stuff that's done at the Navy Yard, NAVC, and all that stuff. It's not glorious. It's not going to, you're not going to um, get famous or pin on a star or anything like that. But it does set you up for a post-Marine Corps career pretty well. I really enjoyed it. And so I made the choice to remove myself from consideration for squadron command and pursue staying in that career field which I did left PAX after that tour, went to the Navy yard for a little while, uh, did kind of some strange stuff there, but nevertheless uh, did some work in the Navy yard. My last tour was at, in the Pentagon and I got the opportunity to work for uh, general Tim Hannafin again. And uh, I got exposed to a lot. Uh, I worked in what's called N95, which is the, uh, Naval Expeditionary Warfare Office, or Directorate. And uh, I was the Na Navy Expeditionary Energy Office, non-lethal weapons officer. I ended up being in charge of small boats. I ended up being in charge of the Riverine Force. And I ended up being in charge of Naval Expeditionary Innovations. Or actually, I was the deputy for that. 
anyway, I got exposed to all this stuff and it was really cool. And there was parts of it that I enjoyed. There was other parts that I really didn't enjoy too much, but it, it was nevertheless important work. And I got a lot of experience, really got exposed uh, to a lot. And then I retired. Um, when I retired, it was 2014. Getting a job at one of the primes, like a BAE or uh, Lockheed Martin or Bell Helicopter or something like that, at the time was extremely difficult. Came down to uh, um, where we are were with the budget. We were we were under a continuing re resolution, and the bottom line, people were just they were just trying to keep their own people hired. There wasn't a lot of opportunity for you know newly retired uh, folks to come in. So. I ended up taking the only job that I got, which was uh, running running banks for Bank of America. Uh, I did that for a year. It was miserable. I loved the people. Um, I hated my job. But again, I learned a lot there. Well, one day I got a call. Uh, actually, I threw a resume at something I saw. I don't even remember what it said, but it was something where I was like, I've done that before. I threw a resume at it. I was so jaded. Um, I, I didn't think I'd get a call back because you usually didn't at the time. This would have been 2015 timeframe. And next day I get a call from a good friend of mine, Tom Garcia uh, from the Pentagon. And he goes, hey, buddy, what's going on? I go, not much. What are you up to, man? Why are you calling me? Not, not that I mind, but geez, hadn't heard from you in a while. He said, well, you applied for this little job I got here in the Pentagon. I'm like, you're kidding. So long and short, he went around to uh, the deputy commandant from aviation who I knew, the uh, and, and some of the other folks there at headquarters Marine Corps Aviation who knew me. Hey, what do you guys think about bringing, bringing Turd in? And uh, they were like, hell yeah, get him here. So no interview. No trip to go shake hands. No nothing. 1300 that afternoon, I had the job. And uh, I took it, went down to D.C., was living in New Hampshire at the time, went down to D.C., uh, did the job, did that for four years, loved every minute of it. So I'm working at Headquarters Marine Corps in charge of the H-1 program, like I, like I mentioned before, uh, got to work. Man, these guys are the Marines that come in, in here, they're all, they're, they're all majors and Lieutenant colonels all getting ready to go take command. They are meat eaters, just ravenous. And it was so awesome to be with those guys, man. I mean, it was just great. And, uh, I, I absolutely loved it. Then, like I said, I got the opportunity to come over here. Another buddy called me up, said, Hey, if you apply for this job, you're hired. And I was like, man, I was so reluctant. I, I, I really, really struggled with it. But I, I said, you know what? This is the last time I'll ever have an opportunity to go overseas. Um, and so I did. And I've spent the last three years, <laughs> the last three years in Iraq. <laughs> well, so a, a lot's happened over, over the past three years in Iraq. So what was the, I guess, let's start off. What was the situation on the ground like when you get there? It was 2019, correct? Yeah, 2019 was pretty, I don't remember all the reasons. I'm trying to remember back. There was a lot of discontent among the populace. And 
the government at the time was was dealing with it pretty um, strongly. They did not hesitate to roll out the gun trucks, and uh, there was a lot of deaths um, based on the government suppressing suppressing these protesters. And I, I forgot what all they were protesting. I I really do. But uh, bottom line, it was corruption in the government. It was the influence of Iran. All these things come together here in Iraq. And uh, I don't remember the numbers anymore, but there was a tremendous numbers of deaths the fall of 2019. We were getting hit with rockets probably twice a week here. And, uh, you know, they wanted the, the big Satan out. And that was, you know, we were pressurizing them. Um, we schwacked Soleimani sometime in December. And I heard the impacts. It was right here. I heard the impacts. And I knew it was not incoming or it wasn't normal incoming. It wasn't 107s. And uh, I was like, what was that? Um, found out the next day they had schwacked Soleimani. Everything kind of got really chaotic really quick and uh air wing here ended up we, we started going to into what's called order departure where we began to kind of slowly move some people out of the embassy uh, and then we went a little faster got a lot of people out but we drew the embassy down quite a bit and uh got them out of here uh reinforced with a reinforced company of uh, marines brought in some rangers uh, there was more power firepower around here at the time than I was not worried about getting overrun. Let's just say that. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was 2019, 20 early into early 2020. Um, then COVID hit. Holy moly. I got stuck at home. I, I, I went home on leave. I got stuck at home just due to travel restrictions for, gosh, I want to say I maybe got back here in, in April. I think I went home in February, got home in it, got back here in April. COVID killed us. It, 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 uh, it, it killed our operations here. It was just really tough. And I ended up doing, instead of doing what should be my normal two month rotation, I was doing uh, three and four months, five months. I was doing a lot of, a lot of time deployed over here uh, because of the travel restrictions and because you had to quarantine and do all this weird stuff, it made it, it made it really, really inefficient to be going, you know, to be taking breaks and going on, um, going on leave. So the, the whole COVID bit was, it was just, it was crazy. Um, from our, from my what perspective. The, uh, here. What was the, what was the COVID experience? Uh, in Iraq, like for the Iraqis, yeah, there it it was running rampant. I know that. Um, I I never touch base with the populace. Um, I never have, and I probably never will. Uh, I used to see them when I when I flew over, and that was about about it. I do know that cases were were really really rampant. Um, there was a lot of deaths, but. You know, and this is one of those things when you when you talk about this issue, uh, you know, everything started to be called COVID, you know, and it's kind of interesting that influenza 
you know, deaths dropped to nothing, but COVID, you know, COVID killed like 2.9 million people worldwide, which is 0.1 million people more than influenza kills um, on a on a normal year. Uh, so it's it's hard to say exactly what it was. All I know, I'll take it at face value and just say that uh, it really uh, had a huge effect on the Iraqi economy. They were locking people down. You know, they were doing all the same stuff really we were doing in the states, um, and and but it did greatly affect day to day living uh, for the Iraqis. And of course, they're already a little more what's the word at risk, right? They're more at risk of getting really sick. They're more at risk of starving to death. They're more at risk of you know, having violence visited upon them um, than your average American is. And so I, I, it, it definitely was uh, something of concern. But, you know, the, the diplomatic um, mission here kind of kind of ground to a halt. It was just hold the embassy and uh, kind of do day-to-day operations to keep the lights on and stuff. Um, but diplomats were not going out and engaging uh, very much, at least. So it was greatly, greatly reduced here. And I know uh, tremendous impact on the people. It's it's rebounded since then, though, much like you know it has in the States. Of course, the implications of shutting down the world's economy for a year, 18 months, wherever you want to call it, we're just now beginning to feel. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. But that's, I think, I think, something I touched on very briefly that we need to remember as American and actually just the West is that these underdeveloped countries, whatever affects us affects them like tenfold because they're already poor. There are, they've already got poor healthcare. They've already got uh, poor energy security, uh, food security, um, a general security, um, It's definitely something for us to to keep in mind. So going going back to you, uh, relating the experiences around the, the Soleimani um, when uh, when the uh, they droned him or took him out, however, um, what was so you said you, like the, the the base you're on was was very heavily protected. Who yeah. what, who were you concerned about? Was it the Iraqi population at large? Was it certain subsections of it? Was there some sections sub subsections who were like, hell yeah, I'm glad we got this guy. Was there some who were like no, he's kind of for us. Like, I know it's a very difficult political circumstances in Iraq, to say the least. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I, I guess, got to remember, I'm more concerned about the, the air threat. But mm-hmm. uh, on the ground, we have security just like you might, just like you might have on, at any building or any location that's at risk. Think you know, a nuclear power plant or something has an unbelievable amount of firepower and whatnot available to it to, to make sure that that place stays secure. Who is the threat? Well, it depends. It depends on the day. It depends on the political situation. So uh, I, I think at the time we were more worried about the, um, uh, the Shiite um, militias. Once uh, Soleimani was removed, Soleimani represented unity of command for these guys. So what it ended up with, if you can imagine 
if every state in America had its own militia and there was a supreme leader um, who everybody fell in line behind and all of a sudden that leader was removed and then you've got people vying to take over that control, each one of these little Shiite militias wanted to show that they were the big guy on the block and that they could poke the great Satan in the eye and that they could, you know, throw flaming garbage over the wall at the embassy or, or, or whatever they might've been done or, or we can, you know, shoot rockets and, and, and try to hit something uh, aboard one of the bases or aboard the, the embassy. So then I think is, was really, it wasn't so much directed at the Americans. It was, but it, it wasn't for our benefit. It was for everybody else's benefit. Hey, I'm the big guy on the block. I'm the one that, uh, I don't know, uh, took out the fuel depot at, at this place. I'm the guy who blew up that convoy or whatever. I'm the big guy on the block. Everybody get in line behind me. So there was a lot of that. It was a power vacuum, basically, that Soleimani left. And uh, every, it, immediately everybody began positioning uh, to try to be the next uh, guy in line or to improve their position within the hierarchy. Pretty interesting, actually. No, absolutely. So it is now uh, 2022. So a lot's happened for Americans uh, geopolitically in the past few years. We have Ukraine going on, Afghanistan. And Iraq is definitely, at least in, in the societal mind, has fallen by the wayside. A lot of people, uh, I imagine, don't even know that we still have people, troops over in Iraq or that we're, we're still conducting some operations. So what what is, in, in whatever, you know, uh, declassified, unclassified way that you can tell us what's going on in Iraq, what's the situation like, uh, what is the future also, uh, so that the, you know, your average American Joe can understand where the hell their tax dollars are going. Yeah. So the mission that I am in charge of here, uh, that mission is is really just strictly security. It's just to make sure that that people get where they need to go safely. And so they, you know, they move by air a lot. And um, it's just a risk reduction thing. So that's what I do. It's nothing too exciting. It's it's just not on a day-to-day -day basis. Nothing too exciting. We've got a very minimal, very minimal, as far as I am aware, very minimal presence of just some train, train and equip type of uh, uh, military personnel here. Uh, nobody's in a combat role, at least not overtly in a combat role. Uh, you know, Lord only knows what's, you know, special operations and uh, stuff is doing. Uh, but overall, it's pretty stable. Uh, I think, I wish I could, I, I had thought to uh, count them up, but gosh, we haven't had, we haven't had rocket mortar attacks, none of that. We haven't had any of that in in a pretty long time now. Longest, probably the longest stretch since uh, since I've been here for the last three years or so. And um, so it's pretty stable. They just they just formed a government again. Um, seems to be pretty copacetic so far. Of course, every day the intel report is yeah. So-and-so says they're going to try to kill Americans. Oh, okay. You mean this time? This time they're really going to do it? It's the, it, you know, it's the same old sort of general threat. 
it's just some noise that's kind of put out there i think to to keep us on our toes or make sure we know that they're there uh something like that but uh, bottom line is, is iraq right now is actually fairly stable so if you'll remember a few things that are going or think about a few things that are going on here we've got an administration who's friendly to iran uh so that's a big piece um and we will see what happens when we have a change in administration. Um, but as soon as somebody wants to start holding Iran's feet to the fire on whatever issue, nuclear issue, you know, sponsoring terrorism, whatever the issue might be, then we'll probably start to see an uptick in activity here. Uh, but honestly, that's that's it right now there's not much to tell uh during kind of hot times you know when when, I, when things start to get crazy i'll i'll often do a video or two you know and publish it on youtube or or uh linkedin or something like that just to kind of get a little bit of word out about what's going on because you're right most americans have no idea probably that there's even people still over here um and certainly have no appreciation for the fact that Iraq is still in turmoil and probably have absolutely no idea why Iraq is important uh, geographically, geopolitically, strategically uh, for the U.S. Um, well, then, uh, if you could you know, succinctly say so, uh, I mean, for, for again, our, our, our listeners who, who are maybe less informed on Iraq, could you uh, answer those questions? Yeah, well, I can I can give you my stab. Uh, and, and most of this is really just my um, my opinion based on my experience and what knowledge I have. You've got Iran who wants to affect the rest of the world, right? You've got Iraq. It sits, if you look at Iraq on a map, it sits in an exceedingly strategic place in the world. It's at the northern end of the Persian Gulf. It's a land bridge between um, Iran and the Med. Um, It borders, has a, shares a border with Turkey, border with Syria, border with Jordan. It's strategically a really important place. Uh, it's in turmoil. And the U.S. isn't going to want to let it go. In other words, I don't, I, I wouldn't foresee us abandoning Iraq the way we did Afghanistan. Although uh, Afghanistan, I think, was every bit as strategic probably for different reasons, but it was nevertheless strategic. Uh, and we let that one go. So who knows? But just geographically where it sits and who you have on the eastern side in Iran and who you have to the north in Turkey and who you have to the west in Syria, Israel, um, makes it strategically important. Well, add on top of that, that it does have oil. Uh, so that makes it strategically important to the West. Uh, and if anybody thinks we're getting off oil, I got a bridge to sell you. You're not, we're not getting off oil. And there's some, there's some rather cynical commentary I can make on that. But look, the bottom line is we're not getting off oil, uh, despite the fact that we have plenty of oil within the United States, 
example, we have chosen to import a lot of our, of our oil. And so the Middle East remains strategically very important. You've got Iran who is a terrorist sponsored sponsor state who is on the verge of getting nuclear weapons or who knows, might have them, I don't know. Um, and they are greatly involved, have completely infiltrated Iraq. So that makes our presence here all that much more strategically important. Um, well, and that's probably good enough for now. I'm sure there's other, okay. I'm, I'm sure there's other reasons, but yeah, oil, geography, and who you got on the right and left. Those are, those are probably the, the big reasons why Iraq is so important. Have any of the protests uh, recently going on in Iran, um, if in, impacted or spilt over into Iraq in any way? You know, that's an interesting question and I have never asked it. So yeah, you had the whole women's, uh, women's protests going on over here. At the same time, there were protests going on uh, here as well as in, in Iran. I'm not sure that they were related. Most of what I've heard about with protests that have gone on here had to do with government corruption, one. Two, people who want more from the government. So this is kind of strange to most American ears, but Iraqis, for one reason or another, and this gets into all kinds of history about their country for the past 50 or more years, but they really look to the government to provide things for them. Uh, people essentially kind of sit around and wait for their brother-in-law or their cousin or somebody to whisper and tell them about a job op opening in the ministry of name the thing. Um, and so they look to the government for jobs. They look to, to the government for, uh, you know, payouts, obviously security and stuff like that. But they look to the government a lot more than I think most Americans uh, would think. And so many of these protests are essentially trying to get the government to take action on some thing. That's one piece. The other piece is you've got people of different, you've got Shiites, you've got, um, uh, oh gosh, the other guys. I, uh, ah, anyway, Sunnis. Uh, you, you got Sunnis. So you got Shiites and Sunnis. Uh, you've got people who follow one cleric or another. They support one politician or another. And so like recently, uh, Solomon, not Soleimani, but uh, Sadr, got some got some of his followers whipped up hey go out to uh go out to this bridge and um create disruption um and 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 they did and and what he was trying to bring to fruition was uh the forming of a new government uh so there's various reasons but a lot of it's just uh just people who are discontent for one reason or another or they've been instructed by uh, one cleric or political reader, leader uh, or another uh, to go out, create a disruption in order to have some outcome. All right, thank you. Um, so uh, getting close to the uh, end of the interview. Uh, so tell me about uh, Semper Savage, the more, uh, oh. the lighthearted side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Semper Savage is a marinade and um, salad dressing company that 
uh, my wife and I uh, came up with a few years ago. We we started uh, actually opened ourselves up for sale in 2019, and we've just kind of been trickling things out. We got four products. We've got a Caesar. We've got a, a red wine vinaigrette, a balsamic vinaigrette, and we've got a apple cider vinaigrette. Uh, they're very tasty. People tend to like them. COVID killed us. Um, and so we were kind of consolidating and uh, figuring out what we want to do. But um, and so we haven't been doing a lot of advertising as we're kind of standing by trying to figure out where we want this thing to go. And of course, we're entering into a recession now. And uh, uh, I can I'm here to tell you that the our input costs are so high right now that we're just kind of paralyzed, but we've got inventory on hand. You can go to simpersavage.com uh, and you can order some. I recently slashed the price um, by 50% and uh, I'll, I'll keep it that way probably through the end of the holiday season. Uh, but yeah, we've gotten really, really positive feedback from folks. Uh, we just haven't been pushing it a lot uh, recently. Uh, just due to the COVID issues, due to some of the uh, challenges we've had with um, with cost, uh, but it's it's still there. It's great stuff. We'd, we'd love to send you some. Just go to simpersavage.com and um, and order some. All right. So, dear listeners, please, it's the holiday season coming up, and now. You get nothing better than salad dressing and marinades to make the holidays that much better. So please go on and buy some. And where can people find you? You said you had you you, you release videos. Uh, All right. Yeah, if you look up John Curry on YouTube, you'll you'll find some videos. And it's I I have zero interest in becoming a professional YouTuber. I just put out things that I I think I bring value to. So uh, my channel is just called John Curry. I haven't posted a video in a long time because. I haven't, I haven't had a reason to post anything, and uh, but there's stuff on there from Afghanistan, from that whole debacle. Uh, there's everything from how to contact your congressman to, uh, you know, discussion of of uh, the origins of morality and the existence of God. So there's there's plenty to choose from for anybody, and I and I think some folks would actually get some value out of it. Uh, we'd love for some pe- folks to come over and and check out the channel. And that's just John Curry on YouTube. If you look up John Curry, Afghanistan, you'll, you'll absolutely find it. Uh, but yeah, get in touch awesome. with me. Well, thank you. Well, John, it was great having you on. And for all our dear listeners, remember that the opinions here are our own. They do not reflect the DOD, the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps Association. We're just here to have a good, honest American time. Well, John, again, thank you. Appreciate you coming on. And I wish you the best of your endeavors and safety. And uh, we'll hopefully hear from you again. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Really appreciate it. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding. But you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC retired, Nancy Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.